Discworld, it's Discworld Podcast Analysis, yeah! So I'm Josh. And I'm Alice. Yeah, you remember how this goes, and we're the Unseen Academicals. Correct. <laughs> and this episode, we are finally talking about a book that's not Witches Abroad. We're going to talk about the fourth book in the Witches series, the 14th one overall, which is Lords and Ladies, wherein we return to Shakespeare as Pratchett's witchy trio must defend the kingdom of Lankra against invading elves and a waning respect for folklore, all while planning a wedding. It's quite a to-do list. <laughs> you have to plan a wedding? No, no, that is quite a to-do list. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this one, uh, it's not going to be a three-parter, but it is going to be another two-parter. So we'll be saving most of the elf discussion for part two. So this episode, we're going to be totally on our bullshit as we use the book to explore quantum continuities, simulacra warrior queens, performative dressing, glamour, the ethics of borrowing, vegetarianism, pagan landmarks, horny gods, and more. And I have a Byronic hero, so... So, in honour of the RuPaul's Drag Race recap podcast, I'd usually get you to name two things you liked and one thing you did not about the book, but I'm going to go first this time because, Alice, I love this book. Okay, okay, alright. I love it so much. (laughs) Yeah, as I was telling you before we started, I've almost finished a complete reread of the Discworld series. I've read everything but Small Gods and the the Death books, because they're the next ones we're doing, so I'm saving them so I don't double up, but I've read everything else, and I think this is my third favourite Discworld book. After Thief of Time and um, and Small Gods, which I haven't revisited. Yeah, I really like this book, so I'm a little bit apprehensive to see what you think about it. If I have to narrow it down to two things I like and one things I do not, one thing I really like is the writing. I think this is a really well-written book. Definitely, like, he's hit his stride after some of the earlier ones we've been looking at. I just, I can't point to anything in particular. I just think this book is incredibly well-written and just really good. <laughs> The other thing I like are the elves. I think this is, I've I've read a lot of stuff about elves, not a lot that we're going to talk about actually, but I've been reading some other fantasy books about elves and things. And I think this is my favorite depiction of elves. I, I really like them. I think it's a cool twist. And there are other books that have done, you know, twists on elves and stuff. But I'm a sucker for a dark elf, right? Sign me up for Hellboy 2 or even Thor 2. I'll get into it. But um, I, I really like the depiction of elves in this book. As far as things I dislike, I had a really hard time finding anything I dislike about this book. And I narrowed it down to, you're smoking like you've got a, I've got a whole itinerary. But um, I've narrowed it down to, there, there is one other thing that I dislike about this book that we'll talk about at some point. But as far as the one thing I think just does not work. I do not like the line, go ahead, bake my quiche. (laughs) I don't like it. It's corny and also just that's not when Dirty Harry says make my day he's he wants them to do the thing so that he can react and, the, and Magrat's that's not what she's doing when she says that I just I just think it's a bad line it doesn't need to be there it doesn't appreciate there's no twist I hated that line and he's used that elsewhere he, in the other books because what I'm learning going through them is he recycles a lot of jokes and things he uses the go ahead make my day thing like a lot it seems to be something he returns to so I feel like it's a bit cheap but that is about the only thing I don't like. The other thing I don't like that just to set it up is I don't like the footnote about uh, Huel at oh, the yeah. end of the fair. taming of the shoe. But there's a there's like two sentences in this whole book that I don't like. Alice, you, please you name two things you like about the book. 
the one thing you did okay, not. Okay, well, I'm going to put you at ease because I also loved this okay. book. Of the books that we, I have reread as an adult human, because everyone should reread Terry Pratchett as an adult, <laughs> this has been the most compelling one that I wanted to return to on my breaks at work when my brain was basically fudge. I enjoyed reading it in the break room. I enjoyed reading it on the toilet in secret. Um, I enjoyed <laughs> running away from my partner on the Zoom calls to, to finish this off. So I, I complained to you when I opened it up that it was 400 pages um, because I had marking and uh, so much stuff to do that at that point in time. But it was a welcome retreat from uh, everything else. I very much enjoyed the actual oh, book. Good. I also thought what really worked quite well for it was um, the fact that it was very contained just in one community and the relationships between people in that community. I think as well as the writing that was a real difference to what we'd seen so far. Um, in terms of two things I like and one thing I did not, I've broken the rules. But um, okay. <laughs> you always do. <laughs> It's the satanic streak in you. <laughs> it's true. Um, I really enjoy the characterization of Verence and Magrat and their relationship and the, the way Pratchett was exploring, you know, what a king looked like and what a queen looked like and their ideas of what it should be and them trying to achieve those, but in doing it actually bringing something much better than the traditional view to the table. So, you know, Verence was a fool, but now he's actually being a good king because he's buying books to figure out what a king is and then putting that into practice. The other thing was in terms of their relationship it takes us you know to the part that happens after the kiss and challenges the romanticization of you know love between royal people and shows the reality of it and then finding each other which I found really nice um because as a little child you're exposed particularly as a girl child um <laughs> you're, you're exposed to all these stories of you know you kiss the prince charming and then that's it and you live happily ever after but it, you know it went beyond that the other thing I enjoyed was the Shakespearean comedy scenes, just because I'm a sucker for a good Shakespearean comedy scene. And every time, um, you know, Thatcher the Weaver and Plummer the Baker or whatever were on, I was, I was having a good time. Um, I particularly liked, I don't think much of my part, it's too small and it's his poor wife. I feel sorry for. But I have other jokes. <laughs> there are a couple of things, well, one main thing. Um, I also really like Casananda, but we'll come back to that. Is he your dark hero? He is. Okay. I didn't like the references to our world. There's a reference to Poland. There's a reference to Yankee Doodle in a crowded bar in Atlanta. And Lady Jane, as in Lady Jane Grey, I think he snuck that in under the radar because he talks about her as an evil tempted grey falcon with the falcon guy. Mm -hmm. It was a bit on the nose. I was like, pick a world. You can't. Stop it. Okay. Stop it. Uh, that's that's it. I mean, I think he justifies that stuff in this book because you have the quantum things, but we'll get to that. And and I'm glad that you did some Casanova research because that is something I went to go and research and then just bailed out of because I wasn't really finding anything interesting. So if you have a take on him, I'm... Yeah, just more as a Byronic guy more than a Casanova figure, but yes. Okay. I think Casanova's interesting. We've talked about Byronic heroes and dark heroes a little bit already on the podcast. Interesting in the sense that it's making a joke about the dwarf being the guy who thinks, you know, he can grow to everyone else's standards, which is perhaps a bit mean, obviously. Um, and he really mm -hmm. hits it off with Nanny Og. But his attempts at flattery and wooing of her play into that traditional idea of Casanova um, as, a, as a sexy cat uh, who just kind of corrupts women by the nature of his sexiness. But I think what is actually interesting about Casanova is to his relationship with Nanny Og, he becomes a redeemed Byronic hero because he's posturing about telling all these lies, uh, making all these stories, trying to represent himself, I think consciously trying to represent, represent himself as a rakish Byronic figure. And then he realises that he doesn't have 
have to do that through his relationship with Nanny Og, who just likes him for who he is and becomes redeemed and falls back on himself a little bit more. And the stepladder on his back. He sort of parallels McGrath in that way, right? He drops the facade. Yeah. And I really liked him as a character because, I mean, he's just a character that's completely drawn from a pun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Like, Pratchett came up with Casananda yeah. is the opposite of Casanova, and yes. then built the character out of that. Like, all of this, it's just like, it's just like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> just also like his business card. <laughs> funny fellow. Yeah, I sort of remember him, like, Sean Ogg coming back in some of the later books as well, but he, he doesn't. But I think he's great. briefly in Carpet Jugulum, but mm. not really. Okay. Also, I want to thank people for the fan mail. Keep sending that. <laughs> The the specific We Like Alice fan mail. Yeah, that's good. More of that. Yeah, so I I gave an outline of the episode at the start, but broadly speaking, next part is where we're going to talk about Shakespeare and elves. So we're not really touching on that here so much. And then this part is about everything else. But as always, we want to start with a bit of the novel's critical reception. So this is a book that Andrew M. Butler gives four out of five in his Pocket Essentials Guide, calling it one of the less satisfying witch novels, but still good stuff. Which, yes, hard disagree from me. Hard disagree also here. Like, what do you mean, less satisfying? I was most satisfied. Yeah, given that he gives um, Weird Sisters um, five out of five. So obviously we're on different ends of the witch Pratchett spectrum there. Roland Green from Bookless, conversely, called it a particularly excellent example of Discworld, saying its only drawback was that when applied to as large a body count as this novel affords, Pratchett's light tone is a little unsettling, but otherwise the book is a superior example of Pratchett's imitable, seemingly endless, fertile wit. Mm. So, a bit more on the same page with that one, and another thing I do appreciate this book is kind of the darkness and the violence of it, which ties into the portrayal of the elves. Yeah, I think it's really cool, but then I think it works because it is balanced out by the humour, right? Yeah. McGrath, who we're going to talk about, is, like, she's a stone-cold killer. Yeah. <laughs> but also, she's this ridiculous wet head in, in a armour made from pots and pans. I think the balance there really works for me. Also, in the newly Nebula Award-winning 2020 biography, The Magic of Terry Pratchett, uh, Mark Burroughs calls this book a fan favourite. So it seems like it has a reputation, although he doesn't directly discuss it anywhere else in the book. And even then, it's only setting it up as a prequel to the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown. So the focus in that book when it comes to the witches is on Weird Sisters and Witches Abroad. So as much as this book does seem like it's liked, it hasn't got as much critical attention as some of the other ones. I guess it's because it's focused on being a good story and there's stuff in it, but the others are trying to do other things. Like, and these oh, are we mutually exclusive? Yeah, we want to do fairy tales. But here he's like, let's do a story with dark elves. It'll be fun. Like, that that's the difference. But when you say Witches Abroad, uh, Weird Sisters, which I know from editing this, I keep swapping those two. I call Granny Nanny and I call Witches Abroad Weird Sisters. Those, those are the two things I do. But something I, I like about this book, among the many things is that I, I think this is doing what Weird Sisters thought it was doing. Yeah, I agree. With the, sh- with the Shakespeare things, Shakespeare, at least. Because yeah. it's doing something new and interesting. It's not just rehashing. Yeah, we don't have this objective view of Granny sitting there going, that's not how things happened. She's in the story yeah. and she's working it from within. I think that's very cool. And this book is also probably one of the reasons you liked it, maybe, although your one thing you dislike suggests maybe not, is this is where the, the continuity of the series really kicks in. Yeah. So in a rare author, note at the start of this book, uh, Pratchett acknowledges that at this point, 14 books in, previously the Discworld books were meant to just be the standalone thing.
things that they were all in the same universe, but it was just sort of a setting for him to go and write these different adventures. At this point, he couldn't ignore the history of what had gone before. So he uses this quantum idea, I think, to sort of fudge over some of the previous continuity uh, discrepancies. And in fact, in when we were talking about that in the previous episodes, I said I couldn't find anything that suggested Pratchett was writing these stories in slightly parallel universes. He's not, but there is a famous a quote or semi-famous quote attributed to Pratchett from the old um, message boards where he says, there are no continuity errors in Discworld. There are only parallel universes. Okay, well, that's a cop out. We all know that. <laughs> yeah, no, he, and he is acknowledging that. Like, he's not, that, he's not doing that, but he is using that to fudge over it. And here we get that actual built into the fiction where we have Ponda coming and explaining the the quantum theories and Granny Weatherwax because she's so tapped into the world and she's so smart and intelligent picking up on the quantum resonances from our world so rather just being this implicit influence in Weird Sisters when McGrath knows about the pricking of her thumbs but she doesn't know why here Granny can actually see into our world and pull these references and she uses them against the Elf Queen right Mm. but you didn't like that I didn't like the explicit references the quantum thing is cool but he's using them to explain other things and it's the narrative not granny and that bothered me oh, okay right yes yeah. when it was the narrator voice like with the Gormagar stuff in equal rights yeah yeah, yeah so we, and we do have some like non-quantum continuity there is acknowledgement that granny has been to unseen university a couple of times previously on this by the way ridcully says that there was a weatherwax art chancellor a few years ago do you reckon that's esque uh no no that is because you haven't reread the other books that is there's an arts chancellor weatherwax in well this is one of the ones you've read the arts chancellor of unseen university in the light fantastic is a weather wax so he's reused that name for whatever reason so here with the pulling the continuity together that's him creating an explanation for that going oh it's my distant cousin which I think is inconsequential, but also sort of implies that, like, there is something genetic. About witchcraft, yeah. Yeah, so it plays into that a bit. So in her PhD thesis, Weird Sisters and Wild Women, that we've talked about a bit, Daphne Antonia Lawless observes that for most of Lords and Ladies, Granny Weatherwax's greatest struggle is not with the Queen of the Elves, but with the intrusion of memories of alternate lives, pointing out that the only thing that could defeat Esme Weatherwax is to make her unsure about who and what she is. What do you think about that, Alice? Yeah, okay. I follow her line. Well, because Witches, Witches Abroad ended with her saying, it's me, I'm the real one. She's so yeah. sure of herself, whereas here her identity is being fractured. Yep, yep. But yeah, she still pulls the same trick by saying that when Ridley is saying, oh, it could have been different, which, where do you think it went right? And she goes, no, it went right here. So she's mm-hmm. still overcoming this with like her self-assuredness. And, and uh, to jump in quickly with the feminist perspective as well, it is nice to see a, a, a woman, a strong woman in a fantasy novel that didn't settle and, you know, followed her dreams and did the hard thing which was to leave the safe settled life and do something else it's good to see that and that it worked out although from another point of view and we'll we'll talk about this when we get to masquerade which is where we're going to go into the maiden mother and the crow and the triple goddess is that granny weatherwax is so powerful because she is a virgin crow good for her but also it's playing into the idea of sex being impure well i like it here all right here it works nicely (laughs) (laughs) yeah and in terms of this granny weatherwax asserting her self-assurance as lawless observes the young Esme Weatherwax is saved from the temptation of the, the Queen of the Elves by her own suspiciousness about any outside force demanding her trust. Yeah. Uh, the Queen of the Elves is saying, I'll make you powerful. And she's saying, no, I'm going to do it myself. So that it's still, we're getting that theme of self-assurance, self-identity, self-confidence being the ultimate power, I guess. 
And it being in a woman, which is nice. Just going back to that. Because you see it in Manfred. I was just reading, rereading Manfred the other day, and he's saying no to the Witch of the Alps, and everyone's like, no, I will not bow down. I will get a start back myself. But it's not nice to see as a woman. But it's always men. It's very rarely women. Women are always the temptresses. Right. This is part of the witch trials, is women yep. becoming witches by being tempted by elves and demons. So it's an inversion of that, I guess. The Quantum Stuff also gives us a glimpse of what the world would be like if Granny Weatherwax never chose to be a witch. Indeed, it is in Lords of ladies that we learn that she did choose to be a witch rather than being naturally destined like Esk was to be a wizard. Um, again, this this sort of contra contradicts stuff that we get in later books like at the end of Carpet Jugulum it's implied that she's the descendant of Black Alice. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned before, the tie-in with Arch-Chancellor Ridcully that there is something to, if not genetics, I mean it's said that Lunkra is somewhere where you get lots of witches and wizards coming from. There's something naturally magic about the area and the land itself. So I'm not sure how much credit we can put into, well, Granny Weatherwax just did it all through hard work when clearly she's predisposed. But it's a mix. It's a soup, right? It's complex. But no, I I really like this. I really like learning, at least in this book, that Granny Weatherwax chose to be a witch, that she was knocking on the door saying, teach me how to be a witch rather than being picked by the the covens. She wouldn't go home, would she? She camped out in the garden and wouldn't leave (laughs) until she would teach her. Uh, On the net, because you made a point there about the nature and nurture stuff. Obviously, there's always lots of that, but there's more of that in this book, again, with Cassinanda, who they go down into the caves and Nanny's making fun of him and says, I was born a dwarf born but you know I'm not one and then uh, as they go further down somewhere in the back pocket of his jeans we get the hi-ho hi-ho so Patrick keeps flip-flopping back and forth on this it's good to see that he's mixing the two up and showing us that it's a suit but yeah interesting yeah and when Magrat declares that she has given up witchcraft it's because she doesn't think she is a witch in the bone like Granny and Nanny. So there is this implicit idea that you you have to be disposed to it. Because mm. even later in the Tiffany Aching books, she sort of does the same thing. She's retreading Granny Weatherwax's steps and they're saying, oh, well, you would have never been chosen. You've done this all through your free will. But at the same time, Tiffany Aching is very much predisposed to witchcraft. So mixed messages about that. It's complicated. Yay. Which is what we say when we don't know how to resolve something. Well, it is. It's complicated. It's, that's it. Yeah, but I'm not quite satisfied because it's like less of a like a 50-50 or, or a mix as he's giving you 100% of both. Mm. Granny is so powerful because she chose, because she's self-deserving, but she's also so powerful because she's Black Alice's descendant. So yeah. he's sort of going all in on both sides rather than it being a mix of the two. But McGrath, while she might not be a witch in the bone, keeps being the fucking coolest- <laughs> Because McGrath is a simulacra warrior queen, and that's sick as shit. You're nodding. Uh, yeah. Sounds like you're about to go off on one, so it's keeping quiet. Well, I want- I mean, What do you think about how cool yeah, is McGrath? Yeah, cool. I've got notes on this. I'm, yeah, it's exciting. It's good shit. <laughs> uh, she puts on the armor. She's badass as hell. Love that for her. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she takes on the character of the legendary warrior queen, Yinsi, who never existed, and whose armor was made from Nanny Og's old pots and pans. Love it. And this is playing with an idea that ties in with um, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is Queen Elizabeth, right? It's the Elizabethan fairy tales. Queen Elizabeth was associated with the fairy queen, as we'll discuss in part two. But Queen Elizabeth also famously wore armor while addressing British tro- troops at Tilbury. Yeah, so she addressed the she wore armor while addressing the troops at Tilbury while they were getting ready to repel the Spanish Armada. Although, of course, Elizabeth never fought herself and apparently didn't even put on the helmet, had a page carry it behind her. But she addressed the troops, and what did she say, Alice? She said, I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. Yeah. <laughs> so even even in doing this, she's... Yeah, that ain't great, but it's it's good. 
Oh, you liked it? Because I was really put off by this. Uh, even well, though I know I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, it's saying that, yeah, I, I don't know. Elizabeth knows that she's... We'll talk about more, this more when we do the Fairy Queen um, next uh-huh. next episode. But she knows that you kind of have to play into the bullshit in order to get them on side. So she does. And she's like, oh, I know I'm a feeble woman, but watch me also completely undermine that stereotype. You've- but also she didn't actually fight. So it's well, all bullshit. I don't think she would have been allowed to, but yeah, I mean, she's queen she should have been allowed to well as Antonia Fraser describes it in her book Bodicea's Chariot which is all about warrior queens and and I do recommend checking that out if you're more interested in this while while she did don armor she was still playing off her feminine delicacy during the address so she wore a silver plate curious but it was over a white velvet dress. Mm-hmm. The Earl of Leicester described this armor as casting her as the most dainty and sacred thing we have in this world to care for. So she's playing up, rather than being the strong warrior queen who's leading the charge, the armor is more protective. It's like, look, I am this delicate female in this white velvet dress, and I need, you're my armor, right? Her troops are her armor rather than her sword, I guess, is the implication there. So it's not quite this. Queen Elizabeth characterized herself by playing into the the idea of the Petrarchan lover. You're familiar with this? I am not. So the Petrarchan lover, it was a form of love poetry, obviously, begun by Petrarch, um, and then used, it was very common at this time. And it would put the woman on a pedestal, essentially, and the man would uh, devote himself to her as, as her slave and her servant, and you can beat me up and I'll put my coat in the mud for you and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And it was almost a way of consoling the woman for the fact that, you know, once they were married, she was trapped in slavery forever. But it was um, a way of creating this this woman who was at once desirable and to be feared. Okay. And a, a strange kind of paradox. And she played into it a lot. And a lot of the uh, literary representations of her use it as well. Spencer, obviously, a lot, uh, which is why it came to mind, but others as well. And I think there's something to this, again, in that she has to present herself as formidable but also desirable. And she's constantly having to balance that out in, in the way she's maintaining power. Because obviously they didn't have police forces and they didn't have security teams and things like that so to keep them from assassinating her and other things other shenanigans she had to have this public image that was at once desirable and also foreboding so I think that takes us a little bit further along explaining her choice of armor uh yeah no that's an interesting take because um yeah I guess I I was looking sort of down on Elizabeth and I do know that she played into her femininity a lot and had to balance this and was getting a lot of criticism but I I saw this I mean obviously it's manipulative but I sort of not not really doing what she, it says on the tin or the iron curious so to speak <laughs> but also although the, the warrior the idea of the warrior woman the warrior queen is seen as a bit of a feminist or matriarchal subversion um it's it's a pretty common phenomenon i i found the more i'm looking into this like there are warrior queens everywhere i mean um um Hi- hippolyta the amazons yeah the, the amazons in the um the iliad uh, and, and all through, I guess, more relevant to uh, Pratchett and Midsummer Night's Dream and Shakespeare thing, like all through British law yep. and especially the Arthurian mythos, yep. you have uh, the British queen Bodicea, mm-hmm. who led a rebellion against the Romans in the first century of the Common Era and was later apocryphally depicted as having sides on her chariot wheels in the style of uh, the Irish warrior god Cú Cullohan. Cullahan, I don't know how to say that. But yeah, there's ongoing representations of warrior queens all throughout European and, and British mythology. Of course, we, we talked about with regard to Sleeping Beauty, there was uh, Brunhilde is the warrior queen there as well. So yeah, there are a lot of warrior kings and warrior men and stuff, but there's also, like, this isn't a new introduced subversion that comes along later. Warrior queens are as old as literature and um, mythology itself. Yes, they should be. 
I was thinking also, <laughs> I was just thinking of Joan of Arc the whole time. Yeah. And then, yeah, Spencer, Belphoebe, Bridamont, Radigand, yeah. My, my reading of the lineage is in The Fairy Queen, which is an epic poem by Edmund Spencer. Um, and Alice can correct me on this, is that the the modern lineage, the Queen Elizabeth's lineage, is descended from Boadicea. Mm-hmm. But there's also the idea that Queen Elizabeth and the Tudors asserted their right to the throne by saying we're descended from King Arthur. Yes, because of Joseph of Arimathea. Right. Who, King Arthur, like, not a thing. Not a thing. Not a thing. So, you want me to work that circle back for you? <laughs> well, I just want to, I was like, oh, the, the Tudors are, they're based on mythology because it's all, it's all crap. It's a simulacra. But also, all monarchies are based on myths. The idea that the god is the the king is the sovereign of God, like it's it's all bullshit. Yeah. So I guess it's not particular, but it, it is this idea of stories becoming part of the real world, which obviously Lords and Ladies and the Witches Cycle is all about. You bring us around. So um, after the War of the Roses, like <laughs> Henry the Seventh, yeah, took power, and he just had no justification for being there. Just none. Like he was the seventh son of a seventh son of a seventh son. We could do it that way if we wanted. Like no reason. Was he to actually be there. no? Um, right. <laughs> but it'd be cool if he was. Um, the point is, he was about related to um, anyone who'd been on the throne as I am to Tim Minchin. Um, <laughs> Alice's God and Savior. My God and Savior. I am a Minchinist by creed. Um, so the Tudors took the throne, and they needed a way of justifying it. So. So they took this ancient mythology and tried to suggest that they were descendants from King Arthur and legitimized the King Arthur myth as something that was real, even though it wasn't. Um, and their way of doing it was saying that, well, Joseph of Arimathea um, bought the cup, the Holy Grail, back from, where was it? Over there, you know, in the in the east, with the blood of Christ in it, and it belonged to King Arthur and they descended from that family and therefore they're actually the one true royal family because they're descended from Jesus somehow. Right. That was that was their line of, th- or not descended from Jesus, but you know, linked to it, they had the cup, and they were the he, they bought them the cup, and so they were the ones who should have been in power, and that's how they got around everything else that happened in between. That's the that's the lineage argument, and that's why they use King Arthur, which is ridiculous. But yeah, that interesting. It is okay. Warrior queens are, are myths that don't exist, but also warrior kings, King Arthur, not real. It's all bullshit. Yeah. Sad, though. Storm the Bastille? Yeah. Shall we, right. shall we do it? Sure. I've never been more outraged than when I went to Versailles and saw Marie, is it Marie Antoinette? Yeah. Her little doll garden, her life-size oh, doll know. garden. I but she know. got the servants to dress up as dolls and play yeah. in. Yeah. Whew. I'm like, I know they already, like, did revolt, but I wanted to re-revolt. Agreed. I was like, bring her back and just chop her down again. It's a lot. As as the falcon, no, the bee guy says, we, we can have a suspiciously Republican grin. <laughs> I liked that line. Not in the American sense. No. 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 But, uh, so that is, and uh, what's her name? We're answering it. Not a cool queen. Do you know who is a cool queen? It's McGrath. Yeah. McGrath's the coolest queen. She's the coolest <laughs> queen. She's around. also not real, but she's real in our heart. <laughs> <laughs> And as Lois observes, taken as a trilogy, Weird Sisters, Witches Abroad, and Lords and Ladies can be seen as a drama of the evolution of McGrath Gallic, from her sad attempts to behave in an occult manner in the first novel, to her first attempts to find her own identity in the second, to her eventual renunciation of the image of the witch in the third, which enables her to assume the same power which the older witches have had throughout. Which is interesting because, yeah, Lois is saying there that she's not renunciating, renunciating? Renouncing witchcraft. She's 
renouncing the image of the witch or the, the rules of the Granny Weatherwax and, yeah. and uh, Nanny Ogg's idea. Representation of witchcraft. Rules and outlines of a witch. Now, this is sort of undermined by McGrath doesn't do witchcraft ever again. It's in the later books that she's essentially given it up. She dabbles in potions and healing magic, but she doesn't really practice witchcraft. But then, hey, neither does Granny Weatherwax. That's the whole point, right? She does potions and, and healing. But as Stephanie Gibbert points out in Elfland Revisited, contrary to Granny Weatherwax, right, McGrath can only be strong when she does not think is sort of the opposite here. So the mm. idea being that when, when she stops trying, she becomes... I identify with that. And I think it's also that where once she gets into the, the warrior queen mode, like she's just running on instinct. Mm. She's not planning anything. She's just John Wicking it through the castle with her crossbows. John Wick has come up like an inordinate amount on these podcasts. Not I from have me, to say. so okay. No, it's, it's all from me, but it's it's become a reference, but a go-to one. Huh. Yeah, so she's sort of there showing that she's falling more naturally into the role of the warrior queen, I guess. She well, doesn't have to It's also her version of what she should be rather than trying to comply with any of these conventions. She's herself when she's not trying to be someone else, yeah? Well, she's trying to be Yinsi specifically. Or she, doesn't she think that she takes on the spirit through the armor or something? Yeah, but the spirit doesn't exist. Yeah, so she's just like doing what she thinks she can do. It is great. Although in, in Discworld, you've got the idea that if belief in something actualizes, it makes it real. So like maybe there is something that McGrath believes in it so much that Yinsi actually, like her spirit does come to her because McGrath is actualizing that spirit. That's not in the text, but it is implicit in the rules of Discworld. World. Hmm, I, I just came up with that then. That I have a scholarship from Cambridge University. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't live on the back of a turtle, so. How do we get there? <laughs> okay. We, we have to invent narrativium. In her 2010 article, Shakespeare in Discworld, Kristen Noon also observes that McGrath is only aided by Granny insofar as she breaks the Elf Queen's glamour, um, arguing that all Granny and Nanny can do is allow McGrath to see the machinations by which the Queen manipulates humans and allows her to act on her own. So she's saying there that. Nanny and Granny break the glamour, but then McGrath is the one who does the act, who fights the Elf Queen. Yeah, okay. So she's being an active player. There's also a connection back to Witches Abroad, which ends with McGrath throwing her wand into the swamp. Here, she renounces the rest of her witchcraft by throwing her hat into the river. Mm. Yeah, so here it's sort of... Like, McGrath's giving up being a witch. Mm-hmm. She's throwing it away, but it was, like, it was the right thing to do at the end of Witches Abroad was to throw the wand away. So here, by analogy, it's casting the witch's hat as, like, a tempting thing that she doesn't yeah. need. Something there. I guess, I guess something else I didn't like about Lords and Ladies more conceptually rather than specific sentences, I don't like that McGrath is sceptical about superstition. Oh, yeah. Like, she's the one who buys into that shit, right? So when she's saying, oh, they're just fairy stories, but she's the one with the wicker books and the dream catchers and everything. It just... You're right. That's poor characterization. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they should have gone with someone else being sceptical of it. I don't know. Yeah, you're right. Um, although I guess that's Granny Weatherwax saying that, oh, you buy into all this new age stuff, but you don't actually have reverence for the proper old stuff. But it also just annoyed me that, like, anyone in Discworld is sceptical of folklore things because it all, it's all real in Discworld. Yes, correct. Yeah, he does revisit this in some of the other books. I can't remember which ones, where it's just, like, people being like, oh, they're old stories. I'm like, you live in a world where stories are real. Like, that is the premise of your world. So I guess that is one weakness of the book that I will concede. Uh, McGrath also with uh, doubles and things that we were talking about last episode with Lilith and Granny and and so McGrath was a mirror of 
Lily as well, in that they were both trained to be godmothers. And here again, Magrat is used as sort of the mirror for the antagonist, and she's a mirror of Dimanda. I like Dimanda. Yeah, but Dimanda is like she has all the occult jewelry and things, and she yeah. dresses like a goth, which like yeah, I, I I like her and stuff. But it's showing that that mindset makes her susceptible to the Elf Queen. Yep. And Magrat is again the contrast there. I was wondering also, I feel like there needs to be a short story spinoff where, you know, Granny does take Dimander under her wing and uses her clear, clear skill and interest and enthusiasm and channels it into something helpful. Like, why, why just shrug them off because they're dumb young girls? Yeah, no, there is a short story from 1998 called The Sea and Little Fishes. I was going to say it's sort of like what you're describing, but it's sort of like the opposite of what you're describing, where Granny Weatherwax tells them to go stick it. <laughs> there's, yeah, in the Tiffany Aiken books, there's um, Lettuce Earwig or Lettuce Arwidge, and she likes to be called who's sort of the McGrat who no one's ever pulled her up sort of thing where she's become this old witch who's all about the the image and the wicked stuff and the, the trinkets and all of that and she she becomes the rival who raises her own apprentice and a grandma who doesn't have a clue and then this short story is about how they ask granny weatherwax not to participate in the witch trials because she always wins and then she she ends up winning by not participating maybe mm. we'll look at that when we get to the the tiffany aching books cool. Um, but in the folklore of Discworld, Pratchett and Jacqueline Simpson state that Magrat and Diamanda's more intellectual and ritualistic kind of magic is more like wizardry, the kind which involves chalk circles and cones of power and candles and tarot cards, and which promises spectacular displays, which on Earth is often called high magic. So nothing new there, but this is Pratchett confirming our interpretation of the, the witch and wizard analogy and that Magrat is not doing witchcraft properly because she's leaning into the wizard stuff too much is their judgment, I guess. They say that such a girl has had an education. She probably wears a big floppy hat and black lace and lots of occult silver jewelry. She paints her fingernails black. She adopts a new flamboyant name. But again, McGrath is the one who does not change her name. Yeah. As we discussed in Witches Abroad, she's the only character with a singular name. So yeah, there, there's some inconsistency there. And this also seems to go against Pratchett's whole thing about performance and the power of appearances, which is revisited in a hat full of sky and the shepherd's crown where tiffany aching is pitted against the diamanda like apprentice witch anagramma hawken but is also empowered through the witch costume and paraphernalia that she gets from boffo's joke shop that becomes a big theme in those books as well so again there's these mixed messages that it seems yeah like he's not complexifying he's just pitting them in opposition but then both are right Mm. but it depends more on who's doing it the characters he likes doing it that's okay but the characters he doesn't like not on yeah Yep. But this idea of costumes and performance is, an- is another big thing in-, in Lords and Ladies. So, as Andrew Raymond, who wrote the thing about the dwarf fashion that we talked about in the Unseen Academicals episode, um, as he observes, people respect the primacy of costume in Discworld. And he asks, how can we say otherwise when it is made clear that on Discworld, fretting about one's performance is an absolute and unmistakable constant? This is from a chapter from Philosophy and Terry Pratchett, misleadingly titled Pratchett and the Masquerade, which makes you think it's going to be about mass great but it is not but there's a lot more of this performance stuff going on in lords and ladies you have the bandit leader with the fake eye patch telling them that you know people respect uniforms and magrat who also read in a book somewhere that witch queens has to dress sexy mm-hmm. which reminded me of um my favorite joke from well not my favorite joke but one of my favorite jokes from cabin in the woods when they're doing the the betting pool on how they're all going to die and there's the whiteboard with all the options and there's the two options there's witches or sexy witches <laughs> <laughs> So I like that one. 
Regard is also preoccupied with costuming when it comes to being a queen, insisting that she must exercise nobilinus obligé by wearing a proper queen outfit. I also like that they put it together like Ikea furniture. Like, (laughs) there's a few layers of funny there, I think. There's, you know, surface layer funny, but also the idea that you have to um, cultivate that facade. Like, you've got to put it together with the oblong that goes into the duty dad. Yeah. Yeah, it's revealing the artifice that goes into it. We see Magrat's inquisitiveness coming through. She wants to know the names of all the dress materials. She's not just satisfied with having someone else give her a dress. She wants to know how to make it. She wants to know the material. She wants to know the construction. It's the research witch thing that we're identifying with coming through. I just love McGranite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also Sean Og, who I thought played a way larger role in the witch novels, but only really appears in this one. But yeah, he's code switching between all these different roles and he has to run and get the other uniforms and things. Ah, he's funny. <laughs> yeah, he's good. But as Raymond observes, the implicit assertion is that these characters can only become what they are through their recognisable performances of what they are. That's a bad quote. They can only become what they are by performing what they are. I get it, but... And it ties in with the idea of Shakespeare in the theatre, which we'll talk about more in the next part. But Raymond also cautions that while this is funny in an ironic way, it also gives Pratchett a free hand to keep on using the stereotypes of fantasy. Um, that I guess there's like the dumb trolls in the yeah. other books and stuff. We've already talked about the orcs. Yeah, the orcs and things. Oh, the, he subverts the orcs. We'll, we'll see this when we get to the wizard books, but some, some of the portrayals of like the a, a, a stock character he has throughout the first few books is the like exotic woman. Okay. I'm thinking specifically of Tracy and Pyramids, where it's like she's a concubine who turns out to be the, the queen, but so she's. The, the subversion is she's an intelligent concubine, which already that's troublesome, but she's still like. So he's subverting it in that way, the trope at least, but it's still playing up how sexy she is. Mm-hmm. I did have an observation joke. Uh, <laughs> a line in this book that is said by Granny Weatherwax, but I, when I read it, I thought this could equally have been said by Steve Jobs, and I find that funny. <laughs> um, and she's talking about why witches only wear black, and she says, only because it's respectable and serviceable. <laughs> it's just it's funny. Um, yeah, well, it ties into a neoliberalist bullshit. And of course, this also ties in with the elf, the elven glamour, which is an aspect of the elves we're going to talk about in this episode. Um, So as Norman Talbot observes in his 1996 article, where do elves go to? What sets elves apart from other magical creatures such as angels or devils, which actually elves might be, a little teaser for part two there. What sets elves apart from other magical creatures is their elven glamour, noting the word is cognate with grammar and reminding his readers of their poetic elegance. Um, this is something Tolkien himself also plays with in his essay on fairy stories, uh, which again, we'll talk about next episode. That's become that we'll talk about this in Witches Abroad. We'll talk about this in part two. <laughs> Indeed, the OED explains that glamour is a corrupt form of grammar which was originally introduced into the literary language by Sir Walter Scott. Mm -hmm. The OED's first definition of glamour is that it is a magic enchantment or spell, especially in a phrase used to class glamour over one. So these are tied in. This is the words, the power of words and all of that. Interestingly, the oldest example that the OED gives of the use of glamour comes from the 1720s, and it's used to accuse witches rather than elves of using glamour, which Scott describes as a special attribute of the race of gypsies. Which isn't great. No. The second definition the OED gives of glamour is as a magical or fictitious beauty, 
or a delusive of, or alluring charm, which doesn't take hold until the mid-1800s. And then it's modern usage, meaning physical allure and feminine beauty doesn't kick in for another hundred years uh, in the mid-20th century. So even though, yeah, it's, it's pretty removed from its original definition, the definition of glamour we have now, glitz and glamour and all of that, is a, is a pretty recent development there. Whereas traditionally, it's been this more nefarious thing associated with witches and elves. So, um, the word was first popularized by Sir Walter Scott, our boy, who remarks in his letters on demonology and witchcraft, fairy pleasures were showy but totally unsubstantial, their activity unceasing but fruitless and unavailing, and their condemnation appears to have consisted in the necessity of maintaining the appearance of constant industry or enjoyment, though their toil was fruitless and their pleasures shadowy and unsubstantial. Um, And Scott also writes in his 1805 poem, The Lay of the Last Minstrel, um, about a spell that having much of glamour might could make a lady seem a knight. My note on this was it's very similar to La Belle Dame Saint-Mercy. What's that? Uh, The Keats, John Keats's poem of that name, the lady has a glamour uh, or or some kind. It's clear that something has drawn the knight in, that she's she's put on some sort of facade. And yeah, he's about to die on a hillside because he's had his life's blood sucked away by a witch, probably, who might also be a vampire. Right, I had a note somewhere and maybe it's in the second part that this is also Christabel. Mm, yeah, Christabel. Yep, the same again. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever I teach one of these, I have to talk about the other one. Come to my class. <laughs> also here, yeah, we got a glamour that could make a lady seem a knight. This is this is a reverse magrat. Mm. Or just just a plain magrat. Yeah, true. What kind of move is the reverse magrat? Well, I have a question about the bucket and stick dance. The stick and bucket dance. Stick and bucket. What kind of move is that? I think it's exactly what you think. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, yeah, very intentional. You said Walter Scott might be our boy. Is Walter Scott our boy? I thought you were not a Scott fan. I had to read all of Walter Scott's novels when I first started my PhD to see if he had any dark heroes. And the answer is no. Yeah, so he's not your boy. Well, I mean, I've been to his house and I've like nosed around his armor <laughs> and shit. So I'm, pr- I'm a pretty big fan of him. Um, right, he's just okay. not my boy in terms of my, my writing. All right. I thought you resented Scott, but. He is a frustrating figure, but also very interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. And invented the word glamour. Yeah. And or didn't invent the word glamour. Popularized it in literature, but yes. As Jennifer Clement points out in her 2013 article, "Remaking Shakespeare in Discworld," and I realise saying all these is very annoying, and I wouldn't do it if I was writing things, but this is an audio medium, so I have to give full credentials for everything. We are academic. In her 2013 article from Making Shakespeare in Discworld, she says, Shakespeare, who was around about 200 years before Scott, does not use the term glamour in his work, although his fairies are glamorous in their ability to cause mortals to see reality through a haze of enchantment. Do I have a point here? I, I, I think the point is the idea is around, they just don't have right. a word for it yet. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for clarifying that. You're welcome. Wait, seriously? <laughs> just... I thought you were setting that up. <laughs> no, no, no. I was just like, I know there's something. Uh, yeah. Is that enough to say that the idea is implicit, even if it's not yeah. properly Elves labeled? Yeah. creatures and things that could cast some sort of spell that make you think that they weren't what they were. A couple of, yeah, it's a hundred years or more than about 150, 125 years before the OED's definitions where they're giving the attributing glamour to witches and things. So, but yeah, this idea has been around in folklore at least. Even yep. if the terminology didn't come until later. Raymond also describes the elf queen's face as a kind of mirror. Thoughts? Mm-hmm. That you look into it and you see yourself reflect. I don't know. You see what you want to see. Mirror is important in Spencer as well in terms of fulfilling destiny and fate. We'll come to that. Um, we will. I'm not sure about that one. I get the idea that it's like distorting reality, but critics and postmodernists, but critics I'm coming to learn as well. Also, overuse mirror analogies. Amen. Yeah. Granny Weatherwax also compares the elf style, beauty and grace to cats. 
Saying yeah. that if cats looked like frogs, we'd realize what nasty, cruel little bastards they are. It's true. So I have to ask. Would you, so would you still like Goose if she was a frog? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right? She frogs can be cute. <laughs> <laughs> let her all slime up there. Yeah. I do like that they're warm and furry. That does help. It really does. Um, it's annoying when they're rubbing their face or poking you in the eye with their claws in the morning, but it is. They're capricious little cunts. <laughs> I claim to be an, you know, equal opportunity anti-species campaigner, but I do really like the warm, fuzzy ones. Like mammals, they're good. Mm -hmm. I saw a picture of a lady holding a wombat in the news today. Oh, made my heart swell. It also makes me wonder, why do frogs get such a bad rap? That's the frog prince. The last thing you would ever want to marry is a frog. Like, who's doing PR for frogs? There's some stuff in this from an evolutionary perspective. Because, you know, children, a lot of them will be like, ew, bugs, snakes, things that, you know, will hurt mm. us in evolutionary sense. But we've got to teach them not to run out into traffic. I think it could be similar with frogs. We It's built into us that we know that they might hurt us if we lick them or try to eat them. So we're like, ew. Well, at least that's how I justify my hatred of snakes. Well, that and Satan. Yeah, but the two go hand in hand. It's because we don't think that it came after. So another thing I thought we could talk about uh, in Lords and Ladies is borrowing, which I think is something you've had some thoughts about over the previous books. Just about, yeah, the ethics of entering another character, another animal's mind without consent and taking over essentially its will and then leaving it confused and befuddled. <laughs> something doesn't sit right there with me, but no. it's imperialism, but with brains. <laughs> Well, yeah, this, this has some historical precedent. So, in the Folklore of Discord, Pratchett and Simpson reference a report from a 1902 journal of folklore that tells of girls who stayed with an old woman and her daughter and upon waking in the night found the mother's body deathly cold. The girl telling the woman, the woman's daughter, that she thought she was dead, to which the daughter responded, her bait and dead, her be out and about now. So that's maybe where Granny Weatherwax's sign comes from. The I ate and dead. Seems like it's a direct reference to this historical quotation. But um, although Pratchett and Simpson don't provide a citation for this article, I was able to track it down, and it's from an article called In Pursuit of Norfolk's Hyder Sprites. Norfolk's Hyder Sprites by Daniel Allen Rabuzi. Cool. And it doesn't add anything more about the borrowing, but the following paragraph reads... Passing from witches to fairies, the belief is weaker. They have not been seen for many years, though they used to dance in the morgue and were like little soldiers. Oh. So I wonder if this is a coincidence, right? Or if this is like the fact that the sign comes in and the idea about the fairy belief getting weaker. Like it's it's a big coincidence that those ideas are next to each other in an article that Pratchett and Simpson cite. Now they write this later on. The Folklore of Discworld comes out in 2008. So that's like almost two decades after... Lords and Ladies. Um, and I thought, well, maybe Pratchett had got this quote off Simpson, who's quoted it elsewhere as well in some of her other books. She's a folklorist. But he says he met her while doing research for Carpet Jugulum, which came out six years after Lords and Ladies. So probably not. Well, definitely not. In fact, the article where he talks about meeting Simpson, Imaginary World's Real Stories from 2000, was published in the Journal of Folklore itself. Mm. So maybe it was the other way around. Maybe is Pratchett writing the section of the folklore of Discworld rather than Simpson? Like, I, I normally just assume it's the second person who's written the whole thing and then Terry Pratchett comes along and puts his name on it. Yeah. But maybe he was more involved in these sorts of things and maybe he found this while doing research about the waning of elves and found this thing about the borrowing and then told Simpson this is all speculation and conjecture but there's a lot there's a lot of coincidences going on there that's that's a conspiracy theory I can get behind yeah and either way it suggests that this is where he got granny sign and maybe even the whole idea of borrowing from 
although it's, you know, through witchcraft more generally as well. In the folklore of Discworld, Pratch and Simpson also reference a 1937 book by the Hampshire Federation of Women's Institutes. That's a federation of institutes right there. Very confusing. <laughs> called It Happened in Hampshire, which tells of a woman called Granny from Briamore that could turn herself into a hare. Oh yeah, that sounds real. Well, this will come back and we'll talk about that. The hare is a thing in um I Shall Wear Midnight, the best Tiffany Aching book. But yeah, there's a lot of, the borrowing plays a really, I guess, a more significant role in this book than maybe any of the others. Well, maybe not Carp but Jugulum, actually. But here, I really like that she borrows the bees. Yeah. And then she's going around bragging, going, you've got to be good to do it with bees. Because <laughs> you ends up with your minds flying in all different directions. <laughs> uh, which is amusing, except that hive minds are a complete myth. Mm-hmm. And this has been known since at least 1927. When the German zoologist Karl von Frisch described the waggle dance through which honeybees communicate, communicate sort of like a dance semaphore that they're doing. Mm. Obviously, dancing ties into the themes of Lords and Ladies as well. Yep. But this was a revolutionary discovery for which he was eventually awarded the Nobel Prize. So it's sort of like well-publicized common knowledge, I guess, that, that hive minds aren't a thing, but it is definitely something that's persisted through fantasy popular culture, fantasy literature, science fiction literature, especially like stuff like all the um, military science fiction that ends with them fighting a hive mind of, of insect aliens, which is everyone just ripping off Starship Troopers. But yeah, this is a trope that is perpetuated in, in fiction despite being thoroughly disproven. So, so a bit of a simulacra going on there. Of course, these are uh, Discworld bees, not round world bees. So, you know, we're playing in the fantasy world. But I thought maybe he could have done more with the dancing, given that it ties into the Morris dancing and the dancing to summon the fairies and all of that. The dances that are the stones. If dancing's a theme of this book, why didn't he take the bee dancing and run with it? Maybe he didn't know about it. He had to. Come on, he's smarter than that. Not everyone knows everything. Also, in his 2010 book, Honeybee Democracy, Thomas Seeley also dispels the myth that honeybee colonies are governed by a benevolent dictator queen, which he says traces back to Aristotle, who was wrong about everything, by the way. Yeah. But I checked, and Aristotle only talks about king bees. Okay. I don't think Aristotle would be having with matriarchies anyway. No. Um, but even then, he says that they are only essential in his f- insofar as reproduction, so I don't know where that comes from. Bees, man. But Silly says a honeybee colony's queen is not the royal decider. Rather, she's the royal ovipositor. And the idea of a bee dictatorship is also popularized by Shakespeare, who writes in Henry V. Doth heaven divide the state of man in diverse functions, to which is fixed obedience, for so work the honeybees, creatures that by a rule in nature teach the act of order to a peopled kingdom. I I think this is deliberate. I think this is an extra theme that Pratchett's taken the bee thing from Shakespeare as well. Seely also uses this as an epigraph in his book, but he uses bees to argue for democratic communism rather than a matriarchal dictatorship, saying that there is no all-knowing central planner supervising the thousands and thousands of worker bees in a colony. The work of a hive is instead governed collectively by the workers themselves, each one an alert individual making tours of inspection, looking for things to do, and acting on her own to serve the community and achieve an enviable harmony of labour without supervision. Alright, I can go for democratic communism. Yeah, I don't know. Is he being a bit... Reading into the bees too much? Yeah, maybe they're not a hive mind, but also, yeah, maybe not socialist utopia either, yeah. 
They're not that organized. <laughs> Nevertheless, Silly also confirms that the only known dominion exercised by the queen is the suppression of rearing additional queens. She accomplishes this with a glandular secretion called queen substance. The workers contacting her pick up on their antennae and distribute to all other corners on their hive. In this way, these workers spread the word that their mother queen is alive and well, hence there is no need to rear a new queen. So this is the equivalent of a human woman just smearing glandular stuff over things to say, don't make more of me. Well, it's the equivalent of Magrat having to flush out the elf queen in the book. Yeah, okay. All right. All right. So you might have missed with the hive mind, but this idea of the, the warring queens. The warring queens thing, yeah. The glandular secretion, we could do without that. Well, it, Pratchett doesn't actually include glandular tissue. <laughs> Did I miss something? <laughs> go back to two things I liked. One thing I did not, the glandular secretion seemed a bit gratuitous. Yeah. But also the the elves are wasps, not bees, right? Which wasps are known to invade the hive. So, is this, if we're going down the bee analogy road, if the bees are a socialist utopia where everyone's looking after each other and the community is working for themselves, right? That's Lankra. That's what Granny Weatherwax wants. And then you've got an invasion of wasps who are who are dictators. Because they talk about that. They use the feudal system as the example. Yep. Right. So do we have here, it's not only wasps versus bees, elves versus humans. It's dictatorship versus community, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. How about that? Now, the bees stuff very, very broadly ties into one of the other themes of the book, which is sort of animal ethics and the vegetarian stuff that I've been threatening to go off about for a few episodes now. Like here, it is made very explicit. It is. More broadly on the animal ethics side of things, as Gibbet observes, Pratchett's elves are very cruel, since they love hunting animals and torture and kill small animals like fish, bees, and rabbits just for sport. You know, like humans do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Very cruel. Nevertheless, as Raymond asserts, the background hum of Pratchett is a nature that is ravenous and cruel. His constant technique is to present us with the sentimental aspect of the natural world. Humble bees, kind old mother nature, a soppy old cat, and endearing mother otter with her cubs, before reminding us that the Rousseauian spectacles through which we observe benign nature distort our vision spectacularly. The bees dismember one another in Lords of the Ladies. The service that the kind old mother nature reserves for small lost baby birds is their slaughter, and the soppy old cat would attempt to fight or rape anything in which is abroad. Mm-hmm. The mother otter and her cubs are matricides and emphasides in Unseen Academicals. I don't remember the otters from Unseen Academicals, but no. these are all books we've covered. So that what we are left with is a nature that is blood red and primordial, wherein mother and children dine upon mother and children. But Pratchett is also intensely anthropocentric. I mean, Lords and Ladies, you have Granny Weatherwax saying that it is the people who tell the land, i.e. nature, what it is. Which is sort of going against this natural order thing, right? The whole idea that Lunker can't be anything unless there's people is very... I mean, it's the power of words stuff, but it's a bit self-aggrandizing yeah. in terms of people and things. So as much as he's saying nature's red in tooth and claw, but also the animals sort of have their own thing that they're doing, he's very much coming down on the side of people are in control of nature, as violent as it might be, I think. I, there's a good quote about Rid Kelly that he did a lot for rare species. Be- bleh, that he did a lot for rare species. For one thing, he kept them rare. Uh, it's just as bad as the elves, you know. Yeah, exactly. As Gibbard also points out, Granny Weatherwax is rather friendly to non-human animals, letting the robin, which has accidentally nested in her water kettle, stay there, and has a special relationship with the bees in her garden. But it's Magrat who is far more extreme in her animal sympathies, and this is where I'm going to do my vegetarian thing to give us a quick recap of the seeds I've been planting throughout ah, the, the previous episodes. 
It's very seminal of me. In Equal Rights, we had Granny complaining that city people don't eat natural food, which isn't an explicitly vegetarian animal thing, but it, as someone who's done a whole bunch of research into vegetarian stuff, this is a, a tied in thought mostly to meat eating, that or processed food, vegan substitute food is you should be eating natural food, which often includes hunting, right? This idea of aggrandizing agrarian and hunter-gathering societies. In Weird Sisters, we had the animal ghosts in the kitchen and McGrath being whiny Mm -hmm. about her vegetarianism. So again, representing her and her vegetarianism as out of touch, even while sort of revealing the violence and the grossness of meat eating. And in Witches Abroad, we had all the meat in Genoa and McGrath describing pigs as what pork is before it's pork, suggesting a meat-centric carnist view of the world. Here in Lords and Ladies, we have uh, Mrs. Scorby, the castle cook, who specializes in artery-clogging dishes so full of saturized fats that they oozed out in great wobbly globules and who can't get the hang of vegetarianism. Here we... We are getting the pushback of Pratchett representing meat eating as unhealthy, I guess, right? It's artery clogging, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Which Pratchett and unhealthy cooks is another trope he employs often, or unhealthy and and rotund cooks. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the the cooking lords of ladies considers vegetables only as things to soak up spare gravy and doesn't think things are herbs unless you can stuff them up a chicken's bum. So very, very meat-centric Karnas view of the world there. And this all culminates in the scene, which is ironically the one part of the book (laughs) that I don't like, where McGrath's demanding vegetable meals from the cook and she says it can't be done the elves turn the whole kitchen upside down and it's going to take me days to get it straight anyway everyone knows raw vegetables are bad for you and I'm not going to be ordered around in my own kitchen by some chit of a girl and empowered by Yinsi's winged helmet Margaret demands that the cook go ahead and bake her quiche and she does and this is right at the end of the book so this is the culmination of Magrat's journey mm. not only is she asserting herself as over the cook being like well, make me a vegetarian meal not a meat meal this is her asserting her authority going no I am the queen and I am in charge of you because all throughout the book she's been um that the cook's been calling the shots and McGrath's going well I own the castle yes the the cycle of McGrath's empowerment concludes with her assertion of vegetarianism with even Granny Weatherwax conceding that this vegetarian option stuff made for a pretty good dinner (laughs) so this is yeah McGrath getting one over her victory is a vegetarian victory at least I'm reading it as that Conversely, the cook's carnist enthusiasm is portrayed as unhealthy. She has three whiskery chins which wobble so menacingly at words like vitamins that McGrath made an excuse to back out of the kitchen. (laughs) Which, yeah, again, ties into Pratchett's fatophobia, which is something that keeps coming back throughout all his books. So there's that. Also, so that's McGrath. McGrath is the vegetarian hero warrior queen. Her enemy... Her mirror, her double, is the Queen of the Elves, who treats humans like Carnus humans treat other animals. Mm-hmm. So we already talked about how Ridcully and the other people, you know, people also treat animals, other animals as sport mm-hmm. and, and hurt them for fun. But you also have this theme of hunting running throughout Lords and Ladies. Right, you have the unicorn who shows up and kills the hunter William Scrope, who is hunting an endangered deer out of season. As Granny Weatherwax point out, the unicorn kills Scrope rather than murders him, since only us superior races can murder. That's one of the things that sets us apart from the animals. One Antioch's original assertion that Scrope was murder reveals, however, is that li- this logic also works in the opposite direction. For her, murder is not by fu- not defined by who is doing the murdering, but by who has been murdered. So humans can be murdered, while supposedly lower animals can only be killed. Uh, This is what Derrida calls a non-criminal putting to death, if you want to get weird and continentally technical about it. Or in the words of Donna Haraway, who I don't like very much, 
Uh, this is what makes some animals killable and others considered non-killable, which is how the elves treat humans, right? This is War of the Worlds, which yeah. is the Martians come to Earth and treat people the way people treat other animals. This is the elves come to Lankara and treat the humans in Lankara the way the humans in Lankara treat the other animals. So the elves, they wouldn't consider killing humans murder since to them they're killable. And this idea is explored even further in... Um, the watch book Feet of Clay, which is all about vegetarianism and golems. Ooh. Looking forward to that one when we get to it in three and a half years. <sighs> but Lords and Ladies' inversion of species as hierarchies is represented by the opening scene it's, uh, of Hearn the Hunted. Yeah. Who is an inversion of the folklore figure Hearn the Hunter, who haunts English hillsides harassing cattle, and who apparently first appears in Shakespeare's play The Merry Wives, the Merry Wives of Windsor. Have you read this one? Mm. No. No, it doesn't have a good reputation, but it keeps coming up with regards to fairies and things, so I might have to read it before next episode. But, Alice, would you like to read the description of Hearn the Hunter from The Merry Wives of Windsor, please? There is an old tale goes that Hearn the Hunter, sometime a keeper here in Windsor Forest, doth all the winter time at still midnight walk around about an oak with great ragged horns, and there he blasts the tree and takes the cattle and makes milch kind yield blood, and shakes a chain in the most hideous and dreadful manner. You have heard of such a spirit, and while well, you know the superstitious idle-headed eld received and did deliver to our age, the tale of Hearn, the hunter for a truth. So yes, this is the the description of the hunting spirit that roams the English countryside, and yeah, this is getting inverted in Hearn the Hunted, who's been chased at the start of Lords and Ladies. But this is all to say my reading of um, the vegetarian assertion of McGrath is set up at the start of the book, right? I'm always telling my students, like, when you read a book, pay very close attention to the start of the book, which and is telling you what it's going to be about, <laughs> and then at the end, just tell you what it's done. So here, if we're looking at that for Lords and Ladies, it's saying this is a book about animals being hunted and humans being treated by animals, and the end of the book is a vegetarian telling a meat eater to go and stick it. Yeah. So this is very deliberate on Pratchett's part, but also... Hearn the Hunter has great ragged horns like the Elf King, who we'll talk about more in a bit. And the return slash intervention of the Elf King at the end of Lords and Ladies can be seen as a restoration of an allegedly natural carnist order. Things are out of whack as the hunters are being hunted, humans are being hunted. The god of hunting shows up and sets everything back to normal where humans become the hunters again. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, an undoing of McGrath's vegetarian thing because the natural order is, is the humans hunting. You also get another inversion of vampires treating people like cattle and carpajunculum and a bunch of other vegetarian stuff in the other series. But otherwise, this vegetarian theme is completely dropped in the Witches and Tiffany Aching novels, where, which McGrath essentially disappears from, until the final book and the final book in the whole Discworld series, The Shepherd's Crown, which is about a vegetarian boy traveling to Lankara to learn to be a witch, where he befriends the Queen of the Elves and takes over Granny Weatherwax's cottage. Holy shit. Yeah, right? So... It's not just these three books, it's the entire Witcher series is a sort of vegetarian, not not a treatise, but yeah, there's the culmination of it is the replacement of Granny Weatherwax by a male vegetarian witch. Cool. Which also mirrors the um, female wizard in the yeah. first witch book. Yeah. So that's cool. So there hasn't been anything written about vegetarianism in Lords and Ladies, and I'm hoping to do it myself. Yeah, you are. But weirdly, there have been a bunch of articles written about the Lunker landmarks in Lords and Ladies and all the other witches' novels. Um, what? Which also get a whole section in the folklore of Discworld as well. Okay. And one of these articles, Imaginary Places, Real Monuments, from a 2002 collection on archaeology and science fiction, the Sussex County archaeologist Martin Brown points out that the Lunker Longman is a combination of two English hill figures. The CERN giant, which is the one with the penis, mm-hmm. if you've seen that. Mm-hmm. And the Williamton Longman, which is the man holding the two sticks. 
or maybe opening a door in okay. Neil Gaiman's Midsummer Night's Dream, which we'll do a bonus episode about. And you can hear it if you give us money on Patreon. Give us money. <laughs> <laughs> give it to us. But apparently there are two small burrows and one long one above the Wellington Longman. Although I can't find any good pictures of these. So I'm not sure how phallic they are, but there is this combination of a, of a long burrow and, and, and two smaller ones. Nevertheless, Brown says that when he asked Pratchett if he knew about these barrows, he said he knew of the hill figures, but that the rest was his own invention. So I also found a really interesting article from the Sunday Times in 1997 called Carry Trips in Pratchett's Pagan Circle, which tells of how Pratchett helped a group of pagans purchase and preserve a, quote, prehistoric stone circle in Oxfordshire associated with druidic rituals and witchcraft. According to local folklore, this circle, the Rollwright Stones in Chipping North, represent a band of warriors and their king who were petrified by a witch. Although their preservation efforts were supported by the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Carey, they were opposed by the local Reverend Stephen Weston, who warned that they had a history of witchcraft in this area, saying that he had seen the forces of evil at work and that they could consume people and destroy lives. Which, this reminds me, actually, when I was in, like, first or second year of my undergrad, I did a journalism unit, I did a journalism minor, and one of the things, I think our first assignment was we had to go to a local council meeting and just find something to report about, right? So, see what's discussed and then go and write a story. And nothing interesting was discussed at the local council meeting, as you might expect. But what I was surprised by and what I ended up writing about is that the local council meetings open with a prayer. Ew! Right! Which I was like, huh, was not expecting that. Also, like, separation of church and state, secularism and all that. I was like, what's... What's all this about? So I went into it and I got brought in by, by something and I ended up interviewing two of the councillors. The oldest councillor on the on the panel and the youngest councillor on the panel. And the old guy was, I went into his house and I interviewed him. And he, I think he actually may work as like a chaplain or, or something at, at a church. Mm-hmm. But he was really cool and he spoke to me about it. We had a really interesting discussion where he was like, yeah, I don't see it as imposition. And it was actually brought to us and people voted it in. It's just been part of it and, and all this. And he had a really interesting discussion with me. The other guy called me on the phone and went off about how if we don't have prayer and council meetings, or he was like, what? Do you want us to worship Satan? Should we, do, you want, do, you want, do we just do witchcraft in the thing? Is that what you want? And started ranting about witches and Satan and everything while I'm just sitting there writing notes. Now, I can't find this. This is from years ago, so I don't have a copy of this interview or quotes or anything. But it was just, I essentially got this guy to just like a local council member to rant about the th- imposing threat of Satanism and witchcraft to the Cardinia Shire Council. Wow, they're out there, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. And they're making laws. And they're making laws, Josh. You have to- well, I'm- our Prime Minister is a Pentecostal Christian. Yes. Yes, but as the article's authors point out, the Stone's previous owner had looked after them for 27 years without undue harm from any of the forces of evil. So it seemed like a safe bet. Also, do you reckon we could get a rumour going that, like, there's witches in my local area? Like, how do we do that? I want that to happen. We run around in the nude. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Both Josh and I have had the conversation about whether or not you are the naked neighbour or you know one, and we both are. (laughs) So maybe we can make that happen. (laughs) Get a cauldron, go the path. for his part, said he had no objection to the ritualistic use of the stones, saying there were far more than museum pieces to be seen only by tourists, although he'd personally draw the line at human sacrifice. 
Well, that's good to know where he draws the line. Hmm. Their efforts eventually led to the formation of the Rollright Trust, which took ownership of the stones in 2001, after which it charged pagan groups a small fee to conduct rituals there, including an annual performance of Midsummer Night's Dream Uh. accompanied by a Morris dance. Now there's the surprise. Right, which is something we'll talk more about when we get to uh, Reaper Man, actually, which has a whole Morris dancer thing. So yes, the Rollright Stones are meant to be a king and his army who are turned into stone by a witch. And the last records of Oxfordshire fairies claim that they were seen going down a hole under the Kingstone at the Rollright Stones. So that's where the fairies are meant to be hiding. And Pratchett owns them. When I was <laughs> little, I was obsessed with fairies. Not like, like little girls are. I was like, but they're creatures and they're living somewhere and we have to find them. And if I look under the right rock, I'll be able to communicate with them. And I wanted to go to the land where the fairies were and I wanted them to take me through. And my mum interpreted this as that I needed like um, a fairy birthday party. And I came out in the morning and it was like <laughs> pink fairy wings and stuff. Oh, and, and I don't know. I think at the time I liked it, but I looked back on it and I was like, mm, okay, well, she tried <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I was obsessed with finding the fairy kingdom. Yeah, I started young. Uh, yeah. So next episode, we're going to spend a lot of time discussing the fairy queen, who is the main focus in Lords and Ladies. But I do want to talk briefly about the fairy king, who is on the cover, after all, of uh, Lords and Ladies. Okay, so I would like to admit that up until earlier on this podcast, I didn't know who the dude was they went to for help. I'm like, is this Lucifer? Is this Satan? I don't know. We'll figure it out in the podcast. So I did think that night, I'm like, maybe like it's a king version. So I feel better now. Yeah, yeah. He's the, he's the king of the fairies and the association with Satan is not unwarranted because again, he's the horned god. It is at the point where I just see Satan everywhere. So sometimes I have to second <laughs> guess myself. I'm like, no, no. No, that's there. That's there. Um, at least in the, maybe not in Pratchett so much, but definitely the folklore, English folklore that he's pulling from. Um, but the King of the Elves lives underground inside the mound, which, along with British folklore about spirits living underground in caves, is perhaps a reference to Danish traditions, where elves were synonymous with trolls, who in those traditions are small creatures who live inside hills rather than the mountain trolls of Finnish and Norwegian folklore. So as Pratchett and Simpson note in the folklore of Discworld, many European traditions tell of an ancient king who lies deep inside a mountain who will awake in the hour of his country's greatest need. Does this remind you of anyone, Alice? Oh, Arthur? Yeah, it's Arthur! Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, so he's Arthur, who apparently has elven heritage. So yes, the elf king in Laws and Ladies is 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 Arthur. Or, you know, is the... Oh, yeah. Well, no, he, he I'm not saying he is Arthur, but like that is, he's fulfilling that function of Arthur, coming and saving the kingdom in its time of need. But then in the Arthurian tradition, Arthur is empowered by his elven associations. Okay. As for his appearance, in the folklore of Discworld, uh, Pratchett and Simpson describe the king as a half-human, half-beast shaman who has an identical twin brother in the dancing goat-like horned sorcerer rock art figure painted on the walls of the Troy Ferez, the Three Brothers Cave, in southern France. And I have a picture there, but you can't see it. It's a little goat man. Satan. They also acknowledge that the king has a heritage in horned figures such as the Greek Pan, the Celtic ant-lid god Cyrenos, and the medieval idea that the devil has bull's horns. Bahamut, yeah. Yeah. Although they claim that it is less than a hundred years since this image is since this image began to coalesce in the imaginations of English witches and pagans. So yeah, I think this is a relatively new association through like the 20th century pagan ritual, which is Gardner just pulling from a lot of traditions and sticking them together and going, this has always been witchcraft. I never spoke to any witches, but I'm pretty sure this is it. Do, do you have anything about the history of the portrayal of, of the Satan as a horn god? 
Horn God specifically, no, because I focus more on like Milton Satan. Yeah, up until uh, Milton's representation of Satan, the devil was exclusively re- represented as an awful, monstrous figure, um, and in all forms of art. And that came from obviously Christianity and Catholicism and etc. And medieval art really capitalized on it. But after Milton, where he actively humanizes Satan's character, you get all of these New Age representations of Satan as as heroic. So that, but mm, don't know about the horn. Mm. Give it also argues that the king represents summer in contrast to the queen's winter. Yeah, right. Uh, which is consistent with a lot of English folklore and explains why he needs to come along and get rid of her. However, this idea is better developed in the Tiffany Aching novels and isn't really or at least clearly developed at all in Lords of Ladies, I don't think. So I'll leave that for further discussion for when we get to those books. Uh, it's also uh, Persephone and Hades. Do you know this story? Yeah. Yeah. I played Hades a lot. Yeah, that's true. You <laughs> showed me how to play Hades. Because it's through the the abduction of Persephone that we get the division of the seasons. So, and again, uh, she's down in the underworld with Hades, and when she comes up, we have summer. So Yeah, and th- this is explicitly played out in Wintersmith, in the, the Tiffany Aching book. Because um, it's also, it's sort of related to Midsummer Night's Dream, because Titania and Oberon, uh, Persephone and Hades, there's like, yeah. this is a character trope. Um, I also noted that the king has a voice like chocolate, which is meant to be like sort of, I guess it's masculine and alluring here. And it's, that's the same signifier that's used to distinguish Pepe as male in Unseen Academicals, that he has a chocolatey like voice. I think you commented that the chocolateness was sort of a female thing on the, on that episode, mm. but here it's being, I guess it's associated with like a deep, sensual, masculine voice. Yeah, sensual. All right. Well, that means it's time to close things out with Misk World. Misk World. Stuff that. Doesn't fit. Yeah. Have you done that yet? No, that's why I'm singing it now. Do you want to give us some woos? Woo! <laughs> Um, yeah, so I mentioned that the uh, King of the Elves is on the cover. Like, the scene that he's painted there, that's on the, the mass-produced paperback, is Nanny Og and Kasananda visiting the King of the Elves. Which, alright, one thing I don't like about this book, I don't like the artwork. Yeah. It's not a very good scene, and it's it's not great, and it's sort of weird. And it took me ages to work out that that was meant to be the King of the Elves, and he's like nothing in the story. Yeah. I mean, something I like about Discworld overall is that there are distinct covers for these books. Not so much now that we're getting American versions and other editions and things, but we have these Josh Kirby and Paul Kibbe um, covers for all of these books. Um, And I was surprised to learn that there are two covers for Lords and Ladies. With the artist Josh Kirby creating a whole new cover for the paperback edition after a bad time with requested revisions of the hardback version, which Discworld and the Disciplines editor Anne Hibbert Alton says in her analysis of Discworld's visual semantics is understandable since the hardcover illustration includes figures not transparently related to characters in the book. But I think that's crazy that the, the original cover, all those characters are in the book. These are the rude mechanicals. Yeah. This is the queen mm-hmm. of the fairies. Wow. Interesting representation. Yeah. Well, talk about that when we get to the light fantastic um this is the king of the elves mm-hmm. this is nanny og and Cassanana. this is mcgrat with the unicorn mm-hmm. and these are there's the librarian and these are the other fairies so one of that isn't in the book i think i've now changed it so my backgrounds on my computer are it cycle through the discord covers um because i'm at that stage of my obsession fair enough i think this could be my favorite one i think this is really cool yeah and definitely gives you more of an impression of what the book is about, especially given that it features McGrath and the Fairy Queen, who are the main characters of this book, whereas the other one's about Nanny Og and the Fairy King, who 
are the most minor characters in the book. So I don't know what that choice was about. Maybe they just told him to get rid of the titties and he was like, fine, I'll just make it the king. (laughs) Just give her a shirt. God. Or (laughs) let her be. Anyway, whatever. Well, this is a thing, Irene, to spoil this, with Josh Kirby, the artist. Oh, he likes titties? He likes titties. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it's, honest, it's honest work. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, well, he... So Pratchett has said... There's a quote somewhere that I'm, I was going to say for the Light Fantastic Podcast that no matter what you say, however you describe a character, if you give it to him, they'll come back as a big titty lady. And this is the cover of Sorcery, the cover of the Light Fantastic. Um, Maybe it's the only type of titty he knows how to draw. Right. Well, the cover of the Light Fantastic has the warrior woman with the thing. But Mm. in the book, it is described she is the subversion of the fantasy warrior lady that she doesn't wear stupid armor that exposes her midriff because it would be dangerous. And she is fully clad from head to toe in black and brown leather. And then on the cover, she's the big titty warrior lady in the armor bikini. Okay. And then on the first, the first book, The Color of Magic, there's no big titty lady, except there is because <laughs> down the bottom on the back cover, there's like a tiny little lady riding on the back of a frog who is topless. Oh. <laughs> so this is just a thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they never go out of style, do they? No, titties, timeless. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, timeless titties. <laughs> We also have a reference to an order of wizards in Lords and Ladies, which I guess settles the, you know, what is the collective noun for wizards oh, yeah. from- Except that we were going on about, um, who's that guy, the, the Rivers of London dude? Oh, Ben Aravonich. Yeah, that we were talking about how he has an argument of wizards and there's this meme about the argument of wizards and I don't know where it's come from. Well, in Wintersmith, Pratchett says that the collective noun for witches is an argument of witches. That sounds sexist, but I'll go with it. Or, well, I think it's more about, about witches. So, but I don't know, like, does that come from Pratchett? I'm not really sure. But then mm, it's been turned to talk about wizards rather than witches. There's also in the Celtic myths um, that we were talking about, where some of the fairies come from, Tiernan Og is the name <laughs> for the other world. I'm wondering if that's a connection to Nanny Og. Could be. I don't know what that's that fun. means, it's but fun. I was just like, they're the same letters in the same order, right? <laughs> I also wanted to know what kind of sex move you think shooing the unicorn is. Well, shoes are clearly involved. <laughs> and maybe you get your favourite shoe and... So you're taking this very literally. Because <laughs> 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 wouldn't shooing be a metaphor for the action you're doing? Maybe you put it on the penis to warm it up when it's cold. <laughs> <laughs> And then it can perform magic later. <laughs> you asked me a serious question. Shit, Alice. <laughs> a serious answer. Because I would have thought, I mean, yeah, clearly the unicorn is the penis. Yeah, okay. But I would yeah. take, rather than putting a shoe on it, like, <laughs> shoeing would be the. So, what do you do when you shoe? You. You, you nail you something, something to yeah, it. Yeah, I know. I, I see it. But mm. that would just be any kind of sex move. Come on. Think outside sure the box. You tap the bottom. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe your idea is better than mine. I'm not sure. <laughs> it just keeps it warm. It's just a fancy way of saying cut the balls. <laughs> no, that's better. That's good. <laughs> ah, this um, will get us jobs. <laughs> I am a bit worried about my Irish people actually listening to this. But then when I got to making money and Pratchett spends half the book talking about a dog running around with a vibrator in his mouth, I'm like, nah. <laughs> We're good. It's cool. It's fine. Yep. <laughs> we also have Nanny Og telling Cassinanda that McGrath says a broomstick is one of them sexual metaphor things. I did. I, I noted that, yes. Yeah. But then did you notice the footnote that says that this is a fallacy? 
Oh, uh, good. Mine doesn't come up with a footnote, <laughs> so I knew I was missing out on something. Yeah. <laughs> you go to the foot. There's a little note that says it's a fallacy spelled P H A L L. That's why. I'm here for the dick jokes, right? <laughs> so that I think that's my favorite joke in the book. If we're doing that, the other one was I just like, and I realize this is a thing Pratchett does, but when Pratchett describes people as swanking around, I just like the word swanking as a verb. <laughs> like Natty Og swanked over here, and then she swanked over there, and then she was just swanking around. So those are my favorite um, jokes. Did you have any that jumped out at you? Um, well, obviously, because of, you know, the sports I play, the the martial arts and marital arts mess up was was good. was a good time. Um, but, you know, a cheap joke. But I like the cheap jokes. The other one I quite liked, uh, well, I already talked about assembling the dress like Ikea furniture. Uh, when Ma- when Magrat tells Nanny when the wedding's going to be, she says it's, you know, going to be midsummer night. Bad choice. Shortest night of the year. Like, implying <laughs> you need more time to party. And I was like, that's a really good take. Well, you got to shoot your unicorn before you uh, get going. I think that's the implication. Mm. And and I also just enjoyed that wizards are not, by and large, breakfast people. Is, yeah, love a good hobbit joke. Cool. I do have one final note about the neoliberalism thread. In her 2006 chapter on the charity of witches in the Tiffany Aiken novels, Rebecca Ancy de Rosario we talked about her work uh, in the Witches Abroad episodes. She observes that in Lords and Ladies, Project considers the implications of duty. If you want to really upset a witch, do her a favour for which she has no means of repaying. The unfulfilled obligation will nag at her like a hangnail. Obligations and bargains are for the witches, the stimulus of community service. And as Eileen Donaldson notes, rather than being monsters, Project's witches are therefore helpful figures in this series. But implicit in that is the idea that kindness is transactional. Mm-hmm. It's like the witches aren't just doing it for someone else. If they feel like they owe someone, if someone does something for them, they implicitly feel like they owe someone. So that's implying that, yes, witchcraft is to treat kindness as a transactional practice. Super Yeah. Mm. And they say, oh, I think this is from the folklore of Discworld. It says that the witch's epic struggles on behalf of Lankara are recounted in Lords and Ladies and Carpa Jagum. Never in the field of interspecies conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. But do the people of Lankara appreciate this? Do they? Hell, they don't even notice, which is perhaps how it should be. So this is Pratchett and Simpson, but Pratchett may be pointing out that the Granny Weatherwax transactional view of kindness is maybe flawed. Mm. That is a character flaw rather than an ideal. Yeah. Hmm. Perhaps. Perhaps. All right. In terms of distinguishing these two parts, this, this is part one. And we're going to do part two about the elves is as we're working out what the show is and I work out how much research I want to do on everything. I realize we, we got two approaches. Yeah. Looking in and looking out, which I think you can apply to academia more broadly. And in this episode, we are looking in at Pratchett from the outside. So we're taking all these theories and all these academic stuff and we're applying it to the Pratchett text to see what we can come up with there. The other approach, which I actually find kind of more interesting is looking from within Pratchett's work outside at other literature. So that's what we're going to do on episode two when we go through all the L stuff is we're not going to actually talk about Lords and Ladies or Pratchett's work that much itself, but we're using the ideas in Pratchett, the idea that elves used to be one thing and that folklore wanes and changes and how stories change people's perceptions. And taking that as a lens, as all academic proposals would call it, to examine traditional views of fairies. So while we're not talking about Pratchett, we're using Pratchett's ideas and applying them to outside literature. So that's what we're going to do in part two. So yeah, that'll be next episode. We'll see you there. Give us money. (laughs) (laughs) Can I take a moment to plug my podcast? 
Yeah, 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 do it. Um, um, I do mention it in the outro to every episode, I do oh, say. Do yeah, yeah, you've What's never the- listened to the podcast. No, because it terrifies <laughs> me. <laughs> I've told you this, it makes me very uncomfortable. You should listen to the last episode and listen to how much better it sounds when we're on different microphones. Uh, okay. Hang on, there is Pratchett the cat is at the door. This is my bee's first appearance of Pratchett on the Pratchett podcast. Hi, Pratchett. <laughs> I love how loud he is. He's oh, very wow. loud. Wow, wow, wow. Chatty baby. Now, plug, plug your podcast, do it. Because we did have someone wrote in, in Amid the Praise for Alice, asking, asking her to, uh, how to find her, um... Her other podcast, which I mentioned in the outro to the show, but in case there's some people that don't make it, do you want to give a spiel that I can edit in at the start? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just very distracted. <laughs> um, it's just so cute. I also have another podcast, which I do with my friend Rowan Burridge, called of the, of the Devil's Party. And the purpose of that podcast is to examine the development of dark hero archetypes. Where did they come from and where did they go, essentially? We are just wrapping up uh, a series of episodes dedicated to Paradise Lost. The purpose originally w- was to develop this discussion around these characters, but also to create a resource for sort of an undergraduate level um, university student so they would have um, some sort of help from the wider world um, when they came to these texts, because often universities have to rush through them really quickly and it gives them a lot more context um, and help with their analysis because they're quite difficult to read. Um, so if you're interested in those kind of texts, that's what we're doing. We're about to embark on a gothic villain journey um, and we're going to look at a lot of Byron's works we're going to look at some gothic novels it's going to be a great time and you can find us on all of the platforms um, at of the devil's party and on Instagram under the same tag and you can email us at of the devil's party at gmail.com thank you yes well we might be able to do some kind of crossover thing or just plug that a bit more because that is going to be relevant to uh masquerade which ties into the fan of the opera dark heroes and gothic villains and things like that which we'll talk about then so if you're interested in hearing more about that you can go listen to alice's podcast uh which there is a link to now in the episode descriptions i've added one in there and we're clear That's all for this episode of Unseen Academicals. There'll be another one along in a month, but if you can't wait until then, you can sign up to our Patreon page and get all the episodes a full month in advance, along with any bonus episodes or specials that we end up doing. If you're after more of us, Alice hosts her own podcast, Of the Devil's Party, which traces the development of the satanic hero throughout romantic and gothic literature. Links to a bibliography for today's show, along with a fully referenced and footnoted transcript should be available in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for some amusing outtakes. Guess who's back on the cast? Mouths flip flapping about it. Alice and Josh again. We're up to eleven. We're editing heavily, limiting compression, drunk and sounds no doubt. Body like wow, push about to get red out. Quotes so plentiful, research unparalleled. It's academic but fun and not stick around. Talking with the mouth, that's that sound. Turn it up, up, up and turn it down. Skip the first ball and the last ball. Sped up again to hear it more. Stream that shit, yeah, love audio dramas, oral content, podcast aroma, from Aaron to Michelle Obama, listen all night, now they call us the Unseen Academicals! Pod, 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 pod,
with this quantum stuff that he's doing in this book as well. This this is an idea that Pratchett is broadly um, obsessed with that keeps cropping up everywhere, but he seems particularly to have been obsessed with it at this time in 1991, 1992, because he puts out a book the same year, yeah, 1992. So he puts out the same year, he puts out the first book of his Johnny Maxwell trilogy, which is a trilogy of books, science fiction books for children. And then in 1996, the third book in that series, Johnny and the Bomb, is about different parallel quantum universes that these kids go back in time and then they're having to try and avert this bomb dropping by jumping into the parallel universes and things. Because just to tie it in with my bullshit, there's a reference to all through the series that there's a reference to these kids watching Star Trek, which is of interest to me because I've just written an article about Star Trek that will be in the science fiction studies special issue on food futures due out mid next year. Get on it. Yeah, there's references to them. And there's a reference where they, they talk about vegans. And he says, which again is of interest to me with the vegetarian things. They say, um, there's a reference to vegans. And he says, no, you mean Vulcans, which is the mm. race in Star Trek. As I've just written an entire article about the Vulcans are vegan. So I think that's incidental. But it's an interesting coincidence to me. Of more relevance to Lords and Ladies is in Stephanie Gibbert's 2007 thesis, Elfland Revisited. She talks about how precious elves, the incompatibility with iron, right? It's because of the magnetic stuff. I like that as an explanation. But also, they have green blood mm-hmm. because they can't have iron-based blood. So Pratchett's accounted for this by giving them copper-based green blood. Although, as she points out, Star Trek originally made pointed-eared, green-blooded creatures famous, which are the Vulcans. Mm, which are vegan, yeah. Who are, who are the elves, like in the Star Trek fantasy science fiction thing. All of that is incidental, but it's a weird, like, mishmash of all these themes coming together. So, cool. yeah. Have you got everything out you wanted to get out? Uh, so far, yeah. And have you said everything you want to say on the podcast? Ah. I think so. It was a jerk. Oh. Okay, well, clearly whoever wrote that is dumb as hell, so. <laughs> Do you want to phrase that differently or am I keeping that in the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, keep it. <laughs> okay. <laughs>